Well, 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 Buzzkillers, here we are. It's a great month in Buzzkill Nation. It's a great month in the Buzzkill Institute because, of course, as you know, those of you who've been listening and those of you who are following us on Twitter and other social media, we're devoting this entire month to a great new book, Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, edited by Dr. Kevin Cruz and Dr. Julian Zelizer. And I'd like all of you to know that this episode is being brought to you by Sir Ethan Esty, who's a knight in the Duchy of Buzzkill, an important member of Buzzkill Society. I've known him forever. We went to college together. So Sir Ethan, if you're out there listening, this is coming from you and your support makes it possible. And very, very fortunately, Professor David Bell, who's, who wrote the first chapter called American Exceptionalism, has agreed to come on the show and talk about that aspect of this book and that aspect of one of the most important, well, that thing is one of the most important myths in American history. Thanks for coming on the show, Professor. Thanks very much for inviting me. We should give your full title, uh, which is the Sidney and Ruth Lapidus Professor in the Era of North American Revolutions. And you are at Princeton University, and perhaps more important, although I shouldn't sort of try to juggle titles this way, the director of the Shelby Cullum Davis Center at Princeton, which is perhaps, again, the most important American history institute in the United States. Why, why did you choose American exceptionalism as the topic for your chapter in this new book? Uh, well, I wasn't, I was assigned the chapter. You were assigned the, the chapter, editors. even better, even better. This was my homework, yes. <laughs> But it's an important concept, and it's a, a, the way it's been used and misused and the way it's developed in, well, the way it's become more prominent in the popular culture, popular political culture anyway, is the subject of your essay. Where does it come from, I should say that? Well, it has an interesting history because it goes all the way back to the 1920s when the phrase started being used, but it wasn't originally used in English. It was used in for the first time in Russian. Russian. And the person who used the phrase for the first time was none other than Joseph Stalin. This is amazing. This uh, is so amazing. There's, a, there's a somewhat twisted history to the concept. To explain, what, now, why would Stalin care about American exceptionalism, you might ask? Well, back in the 1920s, America had a communist party. It was trying to develop support, and it was mostly failing. It did have a fair amount of support, particularly in places like New York City. But it wasn't anything like an important national party that could compete with the Democrats and the Republicans. And the Soviet Comintern was rather, and Stalin, uh, were annoyed about this and called upon the American communists to explain why they were doing so poorly. And uh, Jay Lovestone, who was one of the leaders of the American Communist Party at the time, uh, wrote to Stalin that, well, conditions were different in America. You couldn't expect that America would develop historically in the same way that European countries had done. And therefore, it was going to take longer for communism to develop here and maybe to develop in different ways. And Stalin would have none of this. He said, you know, you can't claim a separate path for America. You can't claim American exceptionalism. This is the phrase used in Russian, iskultichelnost. And for Stalin, this was very important because you couldn't give any leeway to the different communist parties around the world. It was very important that every communist party have the same basic party line around the world. He didn't want to allow independent communist parties to get going. He knew that that way lay ruin for his own enterprise. So the American communist translated this and they loyally repeated, yes, we will have no American exceptionalism whatsoever. And you might have expected the concept to die you know, basically there and then in the, in the period of the Great Depression, except that there were a lot of American intellectuals who came out of a kind of left-wing socialist, even communist background. Yeah. And in the 1950s, 
a lot of them started to ask, well, why has America developed in different ways from other countries in certain ways? Why has it not developed a strong socialist or communist party? Why has it not developed the same sort of social safety net that some other countries had done, for example, with the universal healthcare system? And so they reached back to that concept that had been floating around since Stalin in the 1920s and said, well, uh, maybe there is such a thing as American exceptionalism. So that's really where the term really started to enter American parlance in a serious way. But you say in the early in the chapter that, you know, a lot of places can talk about exceptionalism. There can be Haitian exceptionalism in your field, especially the, you know, Atlantic revolutions. There's certainly French exceptionalism, the British and the Japanese sort of take their own island exceptionalism as a given. So is it's not necessarily, uh, even though politicians in the late 20th century and the early 21st century want to see it as American superiority, the American uh, exceptionalism itself is a term that can be applied in all kinds of places, or was a term that could be applied in all kinds well, of places. Yes, ab absolutely. I mean, the more that I looked into this subject and the more that I was working on it, the more absurd the entire concept seemed to me, yeah. uh, really for two reasons. First of all, as you say, lots of countries can claim to be exceptional in one way or another. Right. In fact, the French often talk about what they call l'exception française, the French exception. The Germans have the Deutsche Sonderweg, the German special path. You know, you look at almost any country around the world and you can find somebody talking about their exceptionalism. Not surprisingly, because, you know, what does it mean to be exceptional? Well, it means to differ from all the other countries, but differ in what way? Well, there, you know, you can always find a way in which one country differs from other countries. And so you can talk about their exception, exceptionalism. Uh, so that's one reason why I think the term is, is fairly absurd. The second reason is that, and this is why it's particularly absurd for American politicians to use it, if you're going to make, if you're going to talk about exceptionalism, this means making a comparison. It means comparing one place to another. It means comparing the United States to other countries. Huh. That means that you actually have to know something about other countries. You can't simply say we're different unless you can say, well, the other country is like this and we are like that. But if you don't know anything about the other countries, then it's it's rather absurd to even start to talk about yourself as exceptional. Very few of the American politicians who talk about American exceptionalism ever actually say anything at all about other countries. Maybe they'll say, well, other countries are less free, but they don't say, well, how less free, in what ways less free. They just assert it. Um, and in fact, most of them, needless to say, don't really know that much about other countries. So they're That's simply right. asserting this without any real basis. When you know, the social scientists started to use American exceptionalism. There, there was a certain model they had of social and political development, which they saw as being more or less the norm for European countries. And they saw the United States because of things such as elements of American history, such as the frontier, such as uh, the kind of central settler past of the United States and other things, making it different in very in fairly specific ways. For, and Seymour Martin Lipset, for example, who was a great social scientist, who was a great fan of the term American exceptionalism, was fairly careful to you know, explain the actual ways in which an American path was different from other countries. But you know, after it entered the political realm, those niceties and those distinctions got forgotten altogether. Well, it is amazing how it so very quickly came to mean American superiority in almost every realm. I mean, it is it is ridiculous, as you say, when we talk about different levels of different levels of freedom or different levels of superiority and freedom and all that kind of thing. But it seems to really have spun out of control and become a, a catchphrase in the late in the late twentieth century and certainly rumbling through the American twenty uh, first century. And it just seems as if 
it's almost talked about as a badge of honor that no one, no other country could possibly attain. This seems not only strange to me, but why has it accelerated and intensified so much? Well, I think one reason is precisely because it's actually such an empty concept. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you say America is exceptional, you're not actually saying anything at all about America. You're not saying anything specific about America. So it becomes a concept that a lot of people can grasp onto without actually having to defend it or without actually having to, again, to, to define it. And that's very useful for people. Now, of course, there's a long tradition in American history of, of assuming or asserting that the United States, or even before the United States, that the, that the British colonies had some sort of special mission, so that America was going to be the, the greatest democracy, that it was going to have this mission to expand across the continent, that it could you know, do all sorts of things that were different from other countries. And, and those ideas, of course, went back long before Stalin had actually come up with the phrase exceptionalism. But those concepts generally were tied to something very specific, either to some sort of religious mission or some sort of political mission or something else. But American exceptionalism, as I that is almost entirely empty. You know, so it's very easy for both Democrats and Republicans to say, yes, we're an exceptional country without again, you know, having to say anything about, about why. Another reason is, is that if you dare say, well, maybe America is exceptional in some ways, but not in others, then you can always have somebody immediately bash you for saying, oh, you're you're against American exceptionalism. You're, you know, you're you're down, you're you're sort of downgrading America. You're you're insulting America by saying it's not the greatest country on earth, and so on and so forth. And I think that Republican politicians have had particular success with this by always almost sort of forcing people both in their own party and also in the Democrats to sort of pay obeisance to this notion of American exceptionalism. It seems to me that that, that last thing, that specific thing, sort of started with Reagan and the, and the shining city on hill, the adaptation of the Puritan speech, supposedly, from the from the 17th century, but it that that has gone so far as to be to become sort of accepted by people like Hillary Clinton, or at least on the surface accepted. She said it. Obama has said similar things about exceptionalism. Is it because it's so vague that it can be seen? That people can just attach whatever they want to it. I think so, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned this speech given by the by the Puritans, given by John Winthrop in uh, sixteen in six in I guess it was in sixteen thirty, coming into Boston, um, and the idea that you know the new colony should be a, he said a city on a hill, and it's remarkable how that has been misinterpreted over time. Yeah, because when Winthrop said that we should be a city on a hill. He didn't actually mean that we should be an example to the rest of the world. He meant the eyes of the world will be upon us and we have to be better and we therefore have to behave better than everybody else. We have to be more moral. And this was coming out of a deep Protestant sensibility, a deep sense of, of sin. And really, he was saying that we have to behave as if the eyes of the world are on us so that we will behave, actually be, be better people than everybody else in the world. And it was you know, he was he was very worried, in other words, about the backsliding, about the temptations to sin, about this actually being a worse place than ever than everywhere else in the world. And then the sermon was was really forgotten for a long time. It was resuscitated in the 19th century. And then Reagan added the word shining to it and said, we'll be a shining city on a hill and completely flipped its meaning to say that we should be an example to the rest of the world rather than you know, that the world should be looking looking at us as an example rather than looking at us to make sure we don't sin. 
And then, you know, even, for example, Hillary Clinton, when she accepted the Democratic nomination in 2016, said, I still believe that we should be Reagan's shining city on a hill. But as you say, it is it is precisely such an empty concept that a lot of Democrats were actually very happy to embrace it because they didn't actually have to agree with anything the Republicans were saying about why we're a better country. They could just say, yes, we're, we're of course, we're the shining city on the hill. We're the example to the rest of the world. You know, even Obama. Now, Obama actually got into trouble with this because uh, at one, there was a news conference in which he was asked, do you think that, you know, um, that you believe in American exceptionalism? And Obama replied, well, sure, I think Americans believe that, that we're exceptional, just like the Brits believe they're exceptional, just as the Japanese believe they're exceptional, and so on and so forth. And the roof fell in on him. Yeah, yeah. The Republicans all said, oh, he, you know, this, this, this terrible communist, Muslim, Kenyan socialist doesn't think that America is exceptional. And Obama actually very quickly started to backtrack and started to drop references to American exceptionalism to half his speeches because of this, because he knew, again, that he wasn't he wasn't actually sacrificing anything by by talking about American exceptionalism. You know, he wasn't going to lose any votes by talking about American exceptionalism, and he could at least placate some of these critics by insisting on it. And, this, and I think Hillary Clinton was the same way. But our listeners might think, therefore, that there's this long dip in the concept between Winthorpe, if you will, and then Reagan's misapplication of Winthorpe. But mm -hmm. one can imagine Teddy Roosevelt saying similar things or, or similar mm -hmm. things to using superiority as the idea. And you can certainly think that Wilson, when going over to Versailles, was thinking certain things, if not saying them directly. I just wonder why it suddenly became this one term. I mean, it seems to me exceptionalism as a word is not exactly very easy to understand for the mass public. America is better. America is superior. People can understand those things. But exceptionalism seems to be this sort of, you know, a longer, heavier word. And in fact, the only thing we're really exceptional in, in terms of comparisons with other countries like ours is gun policy. But if you say that, then, then, you're, then they turn their guns on you. So I just wonder what, you know, is it, mm -hmm. is it was Reagan's version able to attract so much attention and become so magnetic because there were these long, there were, there's a kind of a long history of this braggadocio. Well, there's certainly a long history of the braggadocio. I mean, although often, you know, again, for a long time with a certain degree of, of also of moral caution alongside. So that, for example, at the time of Teddy Roosevelt, we had just won the Spanish-American War, which people still don't always realize. Although if you go to Daniel Immerwar's chapter in the book, which is, a, which is a great chapter, he talks, for example, about the growth of American empire. When we won the Spanish-American War at the very end of the 19th century, we actually, for the first time, got a serious overseas empire. We had the Philippines, a very, very large and populated Asian archipelago as effectively an American colony. We took over Puerto Rico. Uh, we took over over a lot of territories in the Pacific. At the, at the same time, we were actually um, taking over Hawaii. And so suddenly America had an overseas empire and there were plenty of figures, particularly Senator Albert Beveridge, who started to speak in terms of America's imperial mission. That's when right, Rudyard right. Kipling wrote his, his sort of infamous poem, Take Up the White Man's Burden. That was a poem addressed to the United States after the Spanish-American War. He said, oh, all right, Britain has had the white man's burden of, of supposedly civilizing the rest of the world. But now the United States, the younger, more powerful country, has to sort of pick up this burden um, and civil and quote civilize these barbarous people, as Kip Kipling put it, half half what I can't remember, half half devil and half child is the way he right. Put it. That's exactly right. Yeah, very racist way of looking at things, obviously. But at the same time, 
for people like Beveridge, there was always this notion, well, if you have an imperial mission, you have to you have to really do it. You have to, I mean, they were hypocrites, yes, but they would still say, well, you have to actually do it. You have to civilize these people. You have to sort of, you know, bring these people things. You can't simply exploit them. All through American history, as I've said, I mean, there have always been sort of discourses, you know, ideas about the ways in which America was, was superior to the rest of the world. But the use of the term exceptionalism, again, there's a funny story there, because as I said, during the 1950s and then 1960s, the social scientists, particularly Seymour Martin Lipset, who had been influenced by the kind of left-wing tradition and knew the earlier debates in the Communist Party about American exceptionalism, about Stalin's notion of American exceptionalism, that these social scientists had brought this into at least the academic mainstream and it had become a big mainstream topic. Yeah. And then came along this guy who had a history PhD from Emory University. And that guy was Newt Gingrich, another radical, slightly different stripe of radical from Joseph Stalin, but very much a radical. And one thing about Gingrich, who has been, I think, by far the the most important person in popularizing politically the term of American exceptionalism, the thing about Gingrich to remember is that he really thinks of himself as an intellectual. And he has a PhD in history. He likes to read scholarly articles, scholarly books. He writes books that he thinks of as scholarly books. And so he came across this term of American exceptionalism, and he realized with his kind of instinct for the political jugular that this was actually a very effective way of attacking Democrats. So already in 1994, during during this hinge election, uh, when the Republicans took over control of the House of Representatives for the first time in, in, I think, 40 years, during this election, Gingrich started using the term American exceptionalism in his stump speech, in the regular stump speech that he gave again and again and again, not only in his own district, but across the country stumping for Republican candidates. And what he would what he said, he, he wasn't so much interested in American exceptionalism himself. He was interested in the fact that that, that supposedly the Democrats didn't believe in it. The yeah. Democrats he sees, see America as a country like any other. We don't have any special mission. We don't have any special grace from God. We don't, you know, there's nothing that makes us different or better. So in other words, the Democrats don't believe in American exceptionalism. And this is a reason that you should really mistrust them and vote for the Republicans. And clearly, I can't really say whether it worked or not, but clearly Gingrich thought it worked. And he has ever since really kind of ridden this hobby horse of American exceptionalism so that he's published books with American exceptionalism. The title, there was a film that he did with his wife, Callista, about American exceptionalism. He has come back to it again and again and again and again and again. He just loves the idea and he loves the political efficacy of it because he sort of forces the Democrats onto the defensive with it. He says, you don't believe in American exceptionalism. And of course, a lot of the Democrats simply shrink back and say, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Well, with Gingrich, we've done other shows on Gingrich, and it is remarkable how he is this sort of asteroid that hits American political discourse in late 20th century. And what seems to be so strange about it is, at least initially, to me, to me, people didn't push back in the 90s anyway and say... Well, no, the only thing we're exceptional about is guns. And the only thing we're exceptional about is not having universal health care. So, you know, why are, why are these good things? Why are you turning this into a cheerleading chant? Well, I can see it's quite understandable why the Democrats didn't push back in the way you say. I mean, I think most Americans are fairly patriotic. Most Americans, you know, believe in the country. Most Americans have some vague idea that, yes, we are different from other places and better in some ways. Again, the way that people in most countries do have that sense. Right, right, and so, right. And so, you know, it's one thing to to campaign on a pledge, well, we can be better. 
And that's what a lot of Democrats have often tried to do. But you run into difficulties as soon as you start emphasizing the part of we need to be better, which is the part which says we're not so good. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, and so, you know, yes, I would agree with you, obviously. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Democrat. I think that our gun policy in the United States is abhorrent. I think that, you know, the idea that we don't have, you know, true national health care is really awful. Uh, I've lived for a long time in, in, in Western Europe, and I think that they actually you know, God forbid, they do a lot of things better than we do. They have longer life expectancy, they have lower crime rates, they don't have as many mass shootings. But again, you start to say these things in American politics, and you immediately can get jumped on for saying, you, you know, you're being unpatriotic. And of course, there's an extremely long tradition in American history of smearing political opponents as traitors, as right, communists. Right. It goes back to, you know, certainly Joe McCarthy. I, again, I think one of the reasons why the term American exceptionalism was so useful for a lot of Republicans, and particularly for Newt Gingrich, was actually precisely that, you know, it was no longer really polite or accepted to say the Democrats were traitors. You could say they're socialists. But then a lot of people would say, well, what do you mean by socialists? I don't really understand that. Or, you know, and you could call them communists. And of course, you know, now for somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, every, Ameri every Democrat is, you know, ipso facto a communist. They have no idea what communism means for that matter. Right, right. But, but again, you know, American exceptionalism is this delightfully empty term. You can, you can, you, you don't have to attach it to anything. You don't have to say that, you know, they're planning to take over the healthcare system. You don't have to say, you know, that they're planning on, on giving all our secrets to Russia. Oh, wait, that wasn't the Democrats. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, you can, all you have to do is, again, say they, you know, they don't believe we're better. They don't believe we're different. How dare they? And, Again, it seems to still have quite a quite a lot of political impact to do this. Well, it has a lot of political impact, but there's been there's sort of a twist in the tale, in that as you quite rightly point out in the book, Donald Trump talks about actually not liking the concept. Now, it seems to me of uh, you know of the biggest "Make America Great" and "America is the best" cheerleader is is Donald Trump, but yet he talks about not uh, having never liked the term. Yes, that is one of the that's the sort of the really strange twist at the end of the story. Absolutely, with Donald Trump, because as you say, I mean, make MAGA, make America great again. We are the greatest country, and yet, if you look at what passes for political philosophy in the mind of Donald Trump, it's it's fairly simple, which is to say that the world is a place of brute competition where all that really matters is strength and toughness. Which country is strongest? Which country is toughest? And for many many years, Trump has actually gotten a great deal of, of mileage out of the idea that the United States is actually not tough or strong enough, and that other countries are, to use one of his favorite phrases, eating our lunch. He says that again and again and again. He says we're being yeah. taken advantage of. We are the laughing stock, another phrase which is you know absolutely central to the Trumpian lexicon. We, we are a laughing stock. So, for example, during the 2016 campaign, he would say, yeah, China's eating our lunch. Germany is making us a laughing stock. All these countries are doing better than we are. And then somebody actually asked him in the 2016 campaign about American exceptionalism. And he actually said, I don't like the phrase because what matters is competition. What matters, you know, that all these countries, yeah, sure, all these countries think they're better than us. And guess what? They may, maybe they are because they're eating our lunch and we need to do better. We need to be great again. And there are times, because he's hardly a model of consistency, of course. I mean, there are times when he's used the phrase American exceptionalism. For example, during his ex acceptance of the nomination in 2020, uh, in, his, in his acceptance speech at the Republican convention, he did use the phrase American exceptionalism that, that his speechwriter had put in there. But it completely contradicted his, his real political philosophy, which is that which is basically just, you know, we are in this, this dog-eat-dog world, this 
you know, the zero sum world of brutal competition. And we need to basically be better and stronger than everybody else. And it's just, and again, it's one of the ways in which his foreign policy was, you know, broke with, su with such a long tradition of both Democratic and Republican uh, foreign policy, which had placed an emphasis on human rights and things like that. He didn't care. He didn't give any, you know, a flying F about that. All he, he really cared about was beating people, winning, 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 to use right, another right. Trumpian phrase. You know, I mean, it, it'll be interesting to see when Trump finally fades from the scene, if he ever does, whether other Republicans will go back to talking about American exceptionalism in the Gingrichian mode, or whether they will sort of stick to the Trumpian populist sort of line that, you know, we just have to beat these other countries. We just have to like beat them into the ground. Well, the book, it's obviously going to have a lot of resonance with academic historians and then academic adjacent people like me. Do you think and do you hope, I assume you hope, that it will have some impact in, in the broader culture that people, it's not just going to be people who read The New Yorker, it might be other people as well? I would hope so. I would hope very much that this will be read. I think I think there really, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are interested in, you know, who, who have a genuine and, and often very well informed interest in American history, who buy books on American history. No, I mean, would this would this appeal to, you know, to kind of a hardcore Gingrich supporter or a hardcore Trump supporter? Uh, probably not. But that's that's still a fairly small you know, that's a minority of the population. And I think there are a lot of people who will, who will be gen genuinely interested. And I hope they will, you know, one of the great things about the book is that you can, you know, you can dip into the chapters as you will. You can read the chapter that interests right. you most. You don't have to, you know, start with American exceptionalism, although if they do, I'm happy to have them do it, obviously. <laughs> uh, you can really read around. And, you know, and there are lots of fascinating chapters in the book. As I said, Dan Immerwar's chapter about how America really does have an empire is absolutely terrific. Kevin Cruz's chapter is great. You know, so so I think it's, it should be, I think, you know, a, a book I hope that would be also very entertaining for people. I think a lot of the chapters are really, you know, one of the things that my editors did is they found a group of historians who are really good writers. I can, I can, right, you know, right, and right. Uh, so I think the the, you know, the chapters are certainly not meant for other academics. I mean, they're not so much meant for, for researchers to go back to. They're, they're really meant as a kind of intervention in, in public debate. Well, and I'm going to assign it in classes. And I hope that a lot of history professors will assign it in some of their, you know, intro classes to American history, because it is, per, it might be perhaps the first time that students will ever have been exposed to the idea that these myths not only are, are false, but but are so strong in the culture and potentially damaging. No, I, I, I mean, I mean, I think there, we always, I mean, there's always so many myths that, that surround any country's history. Again, we're not exceptional, haha, in that regard, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm probably the last generation of people who grew up in Boston with a good sort of patriotic education about the American Revolution. I still grew up with bad King George and the virtuous colonists and, you know, one if by land, two if by sea and all that and, you know, the horrible Boston massacre and the, Tea Party and all that, you know, and it was it was a shock years, you know, in college to sort of come across versions of the American Revolution that that were a little different from that. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, so I think it's history is always a you know, there's there's always myths and there's always going to need we're always going to need to be sweeping myths aside. So I hope the book will contribute to a sort of healthier and more well-informed public debate. Well, we're certainly going to promote it very heavily. It's on the Buzzkill bookshelf. It's on the blog post for this episode and the succeeding episodes that deal with this book. So it just remains for me to say thank you so much, Professor, for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And we'll say to everyone else out there, please go to ProfessorBuzzkill.com for all the shows and all the information, and that we will talk to all of you next week.